What's up, sports fans? My name is Lucas Weiss, host of the Wee Sports Chronicles podcast. We got a great episode for you today with Joel Darling. Joel is the executive producer of special events for the NHL, working at Rogers Sportsnet. In this episode, I chat with Joel about the challenges of producing hockey in 2020 amidst the global pandemic, as well as his sports media career, his ascension to being one of hockey's leading producers and then we go into the future and have a conversation about what sports television is going to look like what sports content is going to look like after COVID-19 from a production standpoint so a really fascinating conversation with one of the leading producers in sports in this country the We Sports Chronicles podcast is available on YouTube Apple Podcasts and Spotify So make sure to like, rate, watch, and subscribe to all three of those channels. Now let's get to episode 91 with Joel Darling on the We Sports Chronicles podcast. Alright, as I said off the top, I am pleased to be joined by Joel Darling. Joel is an executive producer with uh, the NHL with their special events. And uh, I'm pleased to have him join me today on the We Sports Chronicles podcast. Joel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, happy to be here. Thanks. Well, listen, um, we'll, we'll get into various parts of, of, of your career in just a bit, but you're one of actually one of my first producers that I've had on the show. So maybe just give the listeners just a little bit of an insight as to what your role is and, and what you do as part of your job. Sure. Um, yeah. So as you mentioned, I'm the executive producer of special events uh, with the NHL for Sportsnet. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically the, the role that I have is, is overseeing some of the kind of major events that we do in conjunction with the NHL. So uh, things like the All-Star Game, the NHL Draft, Free Agency Day, um, Hockey Day in Canada, um, outdoor games, things like that, that, that come along. Um, obviously, you know, we did have free agency and, and, and the draft uh, just after the season ended, but uh, that's basically what I do. I oversee those projects. So it, it's really just uh, overseeing them from start to finish. So as, as you're aware, you know, some of the outdoor games are in a building that we don't sometimes do a game in. So it's a matter of organizing how we're going to shoot the game, working with the NHL, booking the crews, working on budgets, things like that. So that's really what it comes down to. I always like to think of once the event takes place, you know, I hand it over to the producers and the directors at that point to run with it. But it's really, it's really kind of um, organizing and, and getting ready for the event um, to take place. So you mentioned some of the events that you do in a given year. How long is the planning process like is it a year out that you're already starting to think about the all-star game the nhl draft yeah i I guess a few examples i could give you that um you know um obviously the the draft was supposed to be in montreal um in the summer obviously didn't take place but normally we would have probably gone to montreal uh as early as uh, in fact, I think we actually did. We did do a survey. I actually couldn't go on this one because I was on a, another survey, but there was a survey done uh, almost uh, November of last year. So 
usually in some cases it's it's six to eight to nine months out um, and sometimes that has to do with the weather if we're doing an outdoor game in Canada sometimes it makes more sense to get there early but the NHL can really um, you know once January comes along when you think of the outdoor games that take place um, the all-star game um, free uh, trade deadline things like that the thing and playoffs you know things get really bunched up so in a lot of cases we do try to get some things uh, scheduled early in the case of uh, hockey day in Canada um, you know I'm sometimes there a year out um, mm. looking at a location and trying to work with the community so it just depends on a lot you know what the community is like in the case of, of hockey day in Canada um, and in, in other cases you know some of it's a little bit easier like for you know, again, when I when I say a draft, we don't use the typical camera positions that are used at a hockey game. So mm. it's a different uh, playing field with regards to a draft. Same with the outdoor game, right? We don't do outdoor games that often. So the uh, last one we did, which was a little over a year ago, was in Regina. Mm. Um, so we would have been in that building, you know, well ahead of time to try and make sure that we had the correct camera angles and, and that we have the right facilities on site to, to broadcast the game. So when you're in charge of these events, what are sort of the conversations that are happening, you know, let's say at Sportsnet? Like, are you talking with your, your fellow executive colleagues to sort of see their ideas for the type of plan or the event they want to execute? Do you talk with the talent at all? How, how are the, what, what types of conversations take place within the company before a big event happens at the, um, in a season? Well, normally what it happens is when we officially are told uh, from our end that it's it's been scheduled, um, you know, the first thing that we really do is meet internally, really with the technical folks. Uh, mm. We have a uh, director of technical operations within our building and some business managers um, who would look at things like budgets and things like that. So we would get a budget basically and start to work with that. So the early discussions really are around the technical side. So if I, again, if I can use Regina as an example for last year, um, you know, it's, it's getting the specs of the building. Where are the camera locations in that building? Um, you know, where can we park the trucks? You know, looking at things like that and then starting to develop a crew. So, um, you know, deciding who we need to bring in from outside of Regina, who we would use locally, because there are local technicians there as well. And again, looking at the specs of the building, uh, booking a, a mobile and, and starting to look at things like that, starting to look at hotels, right? Mm -hmm. Where are we going to uh, put people up? Um, so early on, there's a lot of that discussion really about organizing the event. And, and in, in this case, you know, we might have between 50 and 60 people on the show by the time the show rolls around. So um, a lot of that pre-work is done. And then as we get closer to the event, there's constant discussions with the NHL about the event. Uh, about what our needs are um, and about what their needs are. And then as we get a closer, then we start to get into things more associated directly with the on-air product. So who's going to do play-by-play? -play? Who's the host going to be? How's it going to fit into the evening? Um, you know, are we going to host on site? You know, in some cases we do host on site and we'll have to build a outdoor temporary uh, broadcast booth, if you will. So. Um, those discussions go on really kind of in the six to eight months leading up to it. Uh, and then we'll bring the commentators into it and the producers into it. Uh, the producers would come in early. 
um, just to put, so they're in the loop and the directors on, on what we have to deal with with that building. And then, um, you know, a couple of weeks out, we would bring the commentators into it, explaining some of the situation where they're commentating from. As you know, sometimes we've done it on scaffolding right next to the, uh, uh, right next to the boards. Um, sometimes we've had them up in the booth. It just depends. But um, we would bring them in fairly late. In the end, for them, it's not. Uh, it's another hockey game. Yes, they might be outside, and we have to talk about things like clothing and how they keep warm and things like that. But uh, for the most part, the commentators really don't come into the uh, discussion until we get close. So it's it's a lot. It's a, you know just like anything in television. It's a it's a teamwork. There's a lot of people that. Uh, work on it. Uh, it starts with a small group early out, the technical trying to get the whole base of what is needed for that event. Uh, and then as we get closer, bring people into it as, as need to. Obviously, this year with the pandemic has brought its own unique set of challenges, but let's just say it's a normal year for a moment. What would you say are the biggest obstacles or challenges in, in your role as a producer of these special events? Um, in, in a lot of cases, the, the biggest challenge is uh, they normally in locations that we're, we're not used to doing a broadcast. Mm. And I, I don't mean that. And yes, we've been in, in the Bell Center in Montreal to do a hockey game, and as mentioned earlier, but this time we're doing a draft. So it's a different field of play. So a camera at center ice, you know, is, is not as important as a camera on a jib that can shoot the stage, right? So, mm -hmm. um, so in most cases, it's really about the field of play and what we're, what we're trying to do. So that's the same with Hockey Day in Canada, um, you know, being in different locations and, and having Ron McLean host on site outdoors, right? Where, how are we going to do it? So it's, it's really dealing with the elements uh, in the case of outdoor games or hockey day in Canada. Um, but also, you know, again, in, in some ways it's, it's, it's no different than a lot of things. You know, we need to figure out where to put the cameras. We need to figure out what the storylines are, how we're going to shoot it and, uh, and take it from there. So they each represent their own challenges, but, uh, uh, they're, they're challenges that are, you know, that we live with every day in television. Are there things that keep you up at night? Like, I mean, whether it's like the day before or, or maybe like during the, like during the event, that's just like, you know, God, I hope this happens right. Or like, we're going to need to like adjust on the fly. Well, I think, uh, you know, again, specifically with hockey day in Canada, the thing that always keeps me up at night and keeps me up, uh, months leading up to it is the weather. Yeah. And last, last year we were in yellow night and on the day we ended up with a beautiful day, lots of snow, but really, really cold. Um, but you know, I've been in situations like in Cornerbrook a couple of years ago where a, a rainstorm took out, you know, a sheet of ice outdoors that had been built by the city for the last three or four weeks. Right. So, uh, you know, they had to turn that around quickly. Um, I remember boards being toppled in Lloyd Minster years ago. Um, from a weather, uh, you know, from weather, the wind that just the blew a rink, really an outdoor rink that was built by the city to pieces to some degree. So yes, weather, uh, and certainly when we do outdoor games. Um, other than that, um, I, you know, the, the challenge always is is to just keep everybody moving in the same direction, mm -hmm. people knowing what we're there to do, and and trying to you know, you know, make sure that we follow what the story is uh you know the beauty of all these events is the story is always different so um from a journalistic standpoint we're still trying to you know 
to provide the viewers, you know, a story of what's happening, whatever you're doing. No, I mean, that that's very true. And, you know, as someone like myself currently in journalism school right now, learning about production and things like that, I mean, the whole concept of a team is so important. I mean, I know in sports, especially team sports, I mean, working together as a team is, is so vital, but you really begin to appreciate when you're, you know, in the control room, in the studio, how things just got to gel together in order for it to, uh, for it to all come together. And in, and in the case of these big events, like you said earlier, it's six to eight months of preparation in advance in order for it to uh, be, be broadcast to uh, millions of Canadians across the country. Yeah, absolutely. It, uh, it, it is teamwork and uh, without it, we'd be nowhere. And again, a lot of us have worked together uh, over the years and, uh, you know, know each other really well. So that, that certainly helps. You mentioned that. I mean, how how often do you need to work with someone in order to really get to know them and, and their tendencies and their work ethic, et cetera? Uh, it does take some time. I mean, in the early days, you know, when I was producing CFL football, um, you know, sometimes you'd have a new director in there that you haven't worked with before. Um, and so, every, you know, it takes time sometimes. Um, and I think you know everybody is different so you work with people differently um, depending on what their personality is sometimes their intensity um, I think that's that's just the nature of any job you know working with people in a business you know you, you work with some people differently based on on, on the, again a lot of things but for the most part uh, you know from from a television standpoint producing directing whether it's floor directors or associate producers there's a uh, you know there's a base there that again hopefully anybody who kind of gets into this business has has been able to kind of learn the ropes and and learn uh, from a lot of watching for sure a lot of listening but by the time I think you know that we like to think that somebody sits in the chair you're sitting next to somebody you know you're professional enough that uh, you're gonna get through it it's uh, it's can be a challenge at times but for the most part you know most people who are working together usually have had some contact uh, along the way. So it's the day of the big event, whether it's Hockey Day in Canada, the draft, the All-Star game. Are you there on site in a normal year or are you back in Toronto? I mean, what what's sort of your day of event process? Yeah, no, I certainly on, on these events, I'm on site for them. Um, mm. You know, again, we did the draft out of our studio in Toronto this year, so that was very different, but uh, whether it's hockey day in Canada or a draft or an outdoor game or things like that, basically I would be on site. And again, as I said, I'm, I'm kind of overseeing the whole project. So by the time we get down to the days kind of leading up to it, it's the producer and the director who are really kind of concentrating on what the storylines are and the features and things like that. Um, I'm sitting back a little bit, making sure everything goes smoothly, but kind of handed it over to the producer who at that point is kind of running the show showing the um immediacy of it but uh you know from from my standpoint it's you know they're you know certainly an outdoor game or whatever it might be the draft it, it's it's a long day on show day and it starts early with uh you know technical checks and and you know facilities checks as we call them and having uh, commentators come in and do some uh rehearsals and things like that so i'm certainly in a draft 
you know, it, 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 by the time we get to air, we, we've rehearsed for a couple of days and not only with our commentators, but also with our, our technical crew as well. And do you, Joel, go through after these events, like a debrief of, you know, what went right, what to improve on, or is it sort of just like on to the next one? No, we certainly do. And um, having said that, any event you do, you know, you try new things. Mm. Um, and and the next event you go to, you, you might not try it again based on how it went. Um, but in the most cases, yeah, you're, you're, even in your own head or after the fact, when you're looking ahead to the following year, you, you do want to debrief and, and make sure some of the things that you did were the right choices um, and, and some of the wrong choices you maybe made, uh, you know, to, to improve upon them for next year. So it's just like any business, you know, once you do a television show, your worst critique sometimes is yourself mm-hmm. and uh, you want to try and improve it the next time around. Speaking of trying new things, I mean, 2020 has been a year all filled with adjustments and I'm sure, you know, given your experience with the, with the Stanley cup playoffs, I mean, this has been such a year of adjustments trying to produce a playoffs with no fans in the stands and, and that, that lacking that atmosphere that normally is such an important part of, of arenas during the playoffs. What were your thoughts on just the whole production as a whole and, and just in terms of how are you able, able to overcome some of the inherent challenges of being able to, you know, be a part of this, you know, once in a lifetime uh, event? Uh, well, I mean, it was a challenge. I mean, uh, I, you know, there's no question it was a challenge for everybody. Um, you know, when I think of some of my colleagues who had to go out to Edmonton and, and literally were in that bubble for, uh, I guess it was over two months, mm. um, you know, that that was tough. Now, I, I was based here in Toronto. Mm. Um, you know, the building, we, we produce our intermissions and, and the show is out of the CBC building. Um, so we did have access to the building here. But again, like everybody, you walk into the building, you put a mask on, there's plexiglass up between producers and directors and associate producers and it's it's a different you know atmosphere um the commentators you know are spread apart they've got masks on and you're trying to not necessarily you know interact and you can't really based on how you did before and and uh, so i mean from that standpoint it certainly was a challenge it was a completely different way of of doing things um and again i i certainly uh, empathize for the people who had to be in the bubble in Edmonton, uh, you know, who, who, you know, to some degree, they were a little bit in prison for a couple of months. Yes, they were doing lots of hockey games, but, uh, you know, once they left that rink, there was really nowhere else to go. Um, so from that standpoint, it was, it was certainly a challenge. I, you know, I mean, the games themselves, I thought the hockey was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, early on, people said, what's it going to be like without crowds? I mean, I think in the end, we got used to it. Like watching the Masters on the weekend, it didn't mm-hmm. really matter to me. Um, did we miss the odd crowd roar? Um, yes. Um, but in the end, the most important thing is what happens on, on the ice. And, uh, you know, from my standpoint, we saw some really, really great, great hockey. Um, but yes, I, I mean, you know, when you're producing a game, a goal scored, you look for that kid in the crowd who's you know got the Tampa jersey on screaming and yelling and we didn't really have that atmosphere um you know even producing features with players that we would have done in the past right we just can't do it 
um, the interviews and the intermissions, you know, that Scott, Scott Oakett and Martin Ryan or uh, whoever did those interviews, you know, they were, you know, they weren't as personable, right? Uh, you know, they're in one room and players in the other room and uh, it's, it's not the same. So it, it missed a lot of that. Obviously, I, I, I feel it missed a lot of it, but in the end, I, I don't think it tainted the cup in any way. I thought it was great hockey. Um, and again, you know, TV is a challenge every day. It was just uh, another another set of challenges that were maybe more than any of us have, have faced in the past. You're absolutely right. And I think also as well as, you know, people's tendencies are, are, are changing in terms of consuming content. I mean, obviously, you know, 20, 30 years ago, I mean, linear television was the primary, you know, focus. And now a lot of companies are, are moving digitally and, 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 and in terms of consuming consuming content. I, I'm just curious for you, Joel, like I know you've been on events like Hockey Day in Canada and whatnot that, you know, are so vital for, you know, a platform like linear television. Do you think that it has the same impact in a year like 2020 where there's all these platforms and, and people are, you know, maybe not as, you know, focused on watching on television per se? Well, it's evident in the numbers that we actually are seeing um, mm. with viewers. Um, you know, I, I, we know that the NHL numbers were down, mm. um, you know, this year. And did it have to do the fact that it was in the summer? Yes, absolutely, for sure. Um, but, I, you know, I, I was shocked to hear that the Masters numbers were down. Yeah. I, you know, and down, like, I think they said since 1957. Mm-hmm. Um which uh, there weren't many TVs around back then. But um, when I hear that, like I, I was so excited about the Masters and watched probably more than I ever have. And I also now, you know, happening at 10 o'clock in the morning is a lot different than, you know, 4 o'clock leading into the 7 o'clock hour on a Sunday. So, yes, that probably had a lot to do with it as well. But I, I, I guess I thought, you know, under the circumstances of the pandemic and people at home that, you know, they're going to flip on their TV at 10 in the morning. But I, I think it does probably sh- goes to show you a few things that, you know, like hockey, like the Masters, you know, April is a better feel for it. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and we're used to it. And also, you know, numbers later in the day certainly are, are better. Um, you know, maybe it would have been different if Tiger was leading mm-hmm. uh, going into Sunday. Obviously, he wasn't. Um, but, uh, you know, there's no question that, that there's a lot of cord cutting going on and yep. less and less people are watching linear television. Um, you know, I just saw today Hulu, which I don't really know much about other than they jacked the prices up by 10 bucks, which, you know, you know, surprised a lot of people. So, um, you know, there's a lot of other opportunities out there and, uh, you know, as well as I do, whether it's Netflix or Apple TV or Crave or whatever the case might be, there's a lot of other options. So, um, you know, there's a lot of people who have other options that didn't have in the past. Absolutely. And like you mentioned just about the ratings, I think, you know, the hockey, the, the masters, the NBA finals, when these events are, are held in different times, I think it certainly has an effect on ratings, but I also wanted your thoughts, Joel, because I mean, look, this is a year as well where remote production as a result of the pandemic is certainly becoming a lot more prevalent. Do you think that has a correlation at all with, 
with with ratings or, or do you think that that's you know not related or is it just hard to tell or quantify well it's probably hard to quantify um but you know just by you know just by looking at my phone or looking at the internet the amount of content out there now you know sometimes blows me away there's just so much content available for people um whether it's live sports and again i know we're in the middle of a pandemic but whether it's the nfl or baseball or college football or formula one or basketball or lacrosse rugby i mean all these sports you know it's certainly um there's there's certainly a lot of opportunities out there um you know when this pandemic hit um you know, we were actually started, we did a show uh, in conversation with Ron McLean yep. that uh, originally was going to be on television, but then, uh, you know, over the course of two or three days, you know, we realized we couldn't be in the building. Uh, we, you know, we quickly modified it for um, the internet. It went on to YouTube and Facebook. Um, and there were a ton of things that we learned, just like everybody is out there learning on how uh, I don't want to say easy because that's not the right word, but how technology has given us the chance to do some things that we haven't been able to do before, right? So when you see sports shows being done from home, or in this case, it was Ron's show where he would have a guest uh, or two, um, you know, three times a week where we were actually producing a show with me in my home, Ron in his home, and uh, an editor or a technical operator, you know, in another place in downtown Toronto. Um, so it is amazing how this pandemic put pushing technology to a level that probably would have taken 10 years to get to about producing content remotely. Um, but again, I guess back to your original question, um, which was about, you know, viewership, you know, there's, there's just so much more content available and, uh, you know, the amount of people that are able to now produce content, outside of your, your normal television stations or radio stations um, it's throughout the internet. So, um, you know, why wouldn't the numbers go down, I guess, is, is what you might say in the end. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the conversation with, with Ron McLean because I had your colleague Rob Corte on the show and, and, and he was talking about just some of the things that Sportsnet's been doing, you know, during the pandemic, the conversation being one, the watch parties, another thing, and... I think the watch party is also a really unique concept just to engage fans. And I know that those, you know, shows were often of reruns of events, but I think you could definitely see that become more prevalent because again, fans are, you know, on the digital platforms. They're not necessarily watching linear television as much as they're used to. And I guess for all media companies now, it's just finding new creative ways to create and produce compelling content. Absolutely. And, you know, when I think of younger viewers, and I've got kids from the age of 17 to 24, and, um, you know, I don't see them, you know, moving out and uh, having a regular cable service like, yeah. you know, many of us, certainly my age group, you know, I've grown up with for the past 30 years. So, you know, the, the idea that um, you don't have to have a regular television cable service is um, you know it, it's, it's it's no secret that you know there's less and less people every year every day um, so again that's a big reason why numbers are going down and having said that people are finding other ways to watch it uh, when they want 
uh, where they want. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's easily understood why it's happening. I want to pivot and talk about your career because it's it's interesting that you you know you were saying off the air that you, you're going to be teaching at Ryerson in, in in the winter and you're a Ryerson alum way back in the uh, in the 1980s where it was certainly a different time in terms of media and production compared to to now. I'm just curious, Joel. I mean, were were you always wanting to get into the production side of things in you know in those early days at uh, you know Ryerson and University? Um, you know, I, I wasn't sure really what I wanted to get into, and I think that it's interesting because I think I, I talk about this with some of the students now that I have that I think when you get into uh, you know when you get into a program in this business. You, you may think you want to be on air or you may think you want to be a producer, but to some degree, the only thing you probably really know or can understand is, is what an on-air person does. Mm. Um, I think a lot of people get into the business and they see a job like a, a producer, an associate producer, a director or cameraman or, you know, a lighting director or something like that. And you realize, wow, there's all kinds of, uh, jobs or roles that I never ever really thought of. Um, I think for me, I, I um, you know, when I got into Ryerson, I, I really didn't have any idea what I wanted to do. Um, I had done a little bit of kind of running around at the auditorium in Buffalo as a kid. Um, hmm. uh, my dad was a graduate of Ryerson as well. He was a longtime play-by-play announcer with the Sabres. So I grew up kind of watching what he did. And I, I might have thought that that's what I wanted to do, but I didn't have a voice like him. Hmm. So I, I, I didn't think I would go far in the business. I actually did do play-by-play uh, for the Toronto Marlies while at Ryerson on the local radio station. Um, and I worked with Paul Romanuk. Hmm. I worked with uh, Rod Smith. So yep. I was doing play-by-play, and Rod was the an- an analyst. And uh, <laughs> you can imagine Rob, deep, Rod's deep voice with mine. I had no chance. Uh, and, but I was, a, I was a runner at the time with Hockey Night in Canada. Basically did everything from taking uh, uh, you know, beepers that the referees wore uh, to starting periods to bringing players in for interviews. And I got a real understanding of kind of what was going on behind the scenes. Um, so I think it was probably in my third year at Ryerson I thought I think I wanted to be a producer. Um, I, I kind of liked what they were doing and the control they had over a show and uh you know the excitement of being in a in a control room or a mobile so that's probably where i kind of uh moved in that direction uh, on the producer side and is it just a matter like i guess similar to on-air talent or a writer is it just a matter of just getting your reps as a producer just you know the more shows that you produce the better you're you're gonna get and the more you're just gonna evolve to the point where you are now oh i think so um you know i started out doing uh as i said i was a runner but then i, I went on to become uh, a font coordinator so i was helping mm. with basically the graphic management on on cbc sports shows the old sports weekend <laughs> that brian williams used to host so that's where i started but i again from my standpoint i was sitting right next to uh an associate or an associate director who was sitting right next to the producer and the director so i think from my standpoint being in a control room i learned quickly and i 
learn, you know, about the roles of, of different people within in the control room. Um, and, you know, some of it's timing. I mean, I, I went from being a font coordinator to an associate producer where I did all kinds of kind of features and openings for IndyCar racing, um, football, a lot of different things. And then really just, you know, the first producer job I had was, was working on CFL football. Mm. Um, so and timing, right? Timing has a lot to do with it, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, the first few years of producing CFL football is really where I got my base in producing in the early nineties, where I was in a truck, you know, two times a week or, once a week able to, to produce football games. So um, yeah, reps certainly help. Um, and, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in, in mobiles doing that. How did the years then, Joel, of producing CFL football then prepare you then to transition over to hockey? Well, I, I was a producer of the CFL for, I'm trying to think back, that was probably two, three years, um, and from that role, I went into executive producer of the CFL on CBC. Mm. Um, so that that was kind of my first taste of being an executive producer. Um, at the same time, I was producing other events. I was producing some uh, some golf events that we did. Mm. Uh, I was a senior producer at the Olympics. The first one I did was, well, I produced in 90, uh, 92 in, uh, in uh uh, Albert Bill, yep. uh, and then I was a senior producer. You know, I I moved from being like in '92 as a senior, as a producer producing hockey in '92, and then in '96 I I was um, in uh, Atlanta producing uh, one of the shows. So I was one of the senior producers. So even though I was executive producing some CFL, and then I was executive producer of the department, uh, then I went on to be executive producer of hockey. Uh, in 2000, while also executive producer of the Olympics. So <laughs> a lot of things kind of all came together at one point there uh, around uh, 2000. Um, but again, it's just like anything. You you learn when you, you first start in a position, you, you figure some things out, you watch, you listen, you learn, and, uh, and if things go right, you get more responsibility as time goes on, and that's certainly what happened for me. I mentioned how, I mean, you're, you're obviously, you know, teaching at Ryerson still, and you've had a lot of chance to come across, you know, and, and you know, young talent and, and tons of talent throughout your, throughout your career as, you know, as a producer, what would you say, Joel, are some of the ingredients for an on-air talent in, in order to succeed in, uh, in sports media? Well, there's a lot of things, um, I, now, I, I would say the most important thing, um, obviously voice is important, diction, you know, grammar, all that kind of stuff is really, really important. But I would say more than anything is is research and knowledge and, and of the game. Mm. Um, you know, nobody, uh, nobody can do an event without uh, being prepared. And uh, some of the best um, that I've had a chance to work with um, their preparation is, um, is uh, you know, at the top of the list, right? Um, being able to, to know the sport inside and out, but, but also being able to pick up the phone and make calls to people to get other information along the way um, is, is really important. Um, you know, I always use Cassie Campbell Pascal as an example mm -hmm. of someone who um, is so well-informed 
on on hockey. And mm. uh, part of it is, is you know, her husband is involved in the game with the Flames, and, and I know for a fact she watches games day in and day out. Yeah, um, she'll watch games off tape. She'll talk to people, right? So. She, you know, she's a classic example of somebody who wasn't trained necessarily in broadcasting, um, but she certainly has, um, you know, made a mark for herself. And, and a lot of that has to do with her preparation. She works hard at it. And I, you know, I've talked to her about it before. You know, she comes from, uh, you know, being an athlete who had to prepare every day uh, to make the Olympic team or to be on Team Canada, whatever the case that might be. And I think from her standpoint, she attacks you know, broadcasting in the same manner. You, you need to be prepared. You need to have a, uh, a routine. You need to have, uh, uh, you know, some responsibilities as a broadcaster that you need to kind of make sure you're prepared for. So I, that's the most important thing. And again, you, you can you can look at some of the best that I've worked with, whether it's uh, a Brian Williams or a Ron McLean or a Scott Oak, uh, a Scott Russell, like all those guys. Um, you know, Brenda Irving, right? They mm-hmm. all just are incredibly um, voracious when it comes to information and trying to learn as much about what they are covering. You mentioned some of those names, and it's interesting because I think, you know, a train of thought is that, look, you know, in order to get to a big national network or big market, you need to get your reps and experience in a, in a smaller market, maybe out west or in a smaller town. But it's interesting how, though, that train of thought has maybe shifted a little bit because you're seeing seeing on Sportsnet like a Kyle Bukowskis, a young person being able to have a quicker ascension to you know a national you know national spotlight. So I'm just sort of curious, Joel, your thoughts on whether do younger broadcasters need to necessarily go to a smaller market to get their reps, or if if they are good. Could they maybe you know get to a bigger market at a at a more quicker rate? I guess it depends ultimately, but just want your yeah, thoughts. It, it depends. I, I think in the end, talent will win out. Mm. If you are extremely talented, um, and Kyle's a perfect example. If you're extremely talented, like he is, um, you know you're going you're going to um, you know get a role that's uh, that's ahead of maybe where somebody else was. Um, you know, and when you say, yeah, in the old days, when I, I think of, you know, my dad back in the, the 50s, and again, he was a graduate of Ryerson who, you know, felt he had to leave to Toronto. He went he leave Toronto. So he went to Sudbury and, and Kingston and a few other places. And um, there are people who still do that today. There are people who have done that in the last number of years. But, um, you know, there's there's also a lot more opportunities to some degree. There's, you know, there's the TSNs, there's the Sportsnet. Um, you know, there's other, you know, uh, there are YouTube channels or radio mm-hmm. stations or things like that. There are um, certainly other opportunities, maybe more than there haven't been in the past. Now, that's not to say it's not a good move. Um, you know, there are people who go off and work in small towns and uh, and do come back. Um, so it, it does happen. But I, I do think, again, the other thing is today there's, you know, people can get so much more exposure mm-hmm. than they couldn't years ago you know that person working in Capascasing at a radio station might be fantastic but they don't really have any way of um, getting other people to see their work as easily as people can see it today right so um, yeah so I, I do still think the cream of the crop will come to the top um, 
and uh, which is the way it should work out. The mm -hmm. best people should really have some of those really important roles, um, and uh, and how that, that's that's where it ends up. I, I like to think in the end, uh, it does end up that that way sometimes. Last question for you, Joel. Obviously, you know people that are ever in a, a truck or a or a studio or you know mobile, as you say, you know things could get pretty intense in there. I mean, if something doesn't go right or there's a lot of talking, sometimes raised voices happen. I'm just curious if you have a a memorable story of your uh, of your time in your career in in the truck uh, that you'd like to uh, share, where things. Uh, May have not gone according to plan, but you were able to, uh, you know, round it back into shape so the viewer can really see. Didn't even know it, it, it happened. <laughs> well, I always think of a funny one that, that happened once when uh, I was actually, I was still in school at the time, and I was uh, I was producing games on, on Buffalo Sabres television. Mm -hmm. My dad at the time was, was the play-by-play -play announcer. And uh, at one point we were going to commercial, and I, I was talking into his ear and tried to give him a count to commercial. So he's throwing a commercial and missed my count, right? So he spilled over into the commercial break and we're in the commercial break. And I said, uh, I think I called him Ted at the time just because it was a formal atmosphere. So I hit the key to him and said, uh, Ted, you got to take my count to commercial. And uh, so he didn't really say much. And we came back from commercial. And at the time I was living at home in our house in Lockport, New York. I, I think I was, um, I think it was the first year I was out of university. I was working in Toronto as well. But anyway, so we came out of commercial, and he was doing the game with Mike Robitaille, and um, he says, welcome back. And then all of a sudden he says, on air, he says, can you believe this, Mike? I've got my son in my ear telling me that uh, I've got to be better throwing this commercial. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, uh, he said, can you believe that? I can't even get him to keep his room clean at home. <laughs> so I thought that was uh, that was always something that I, th I thought was uh, funny at the time. Um, outside of that, I mean, I've worked with some people who have uh, have been some incredible streamers. Um, <laughs> I can remember back in the day uh, in, uh, in Buffalo working at a game, and the producer at the time for ESPN was not happy with a tape operator. And granted, the tape operator was probably not very good, um, but uh, the expletives that came out of this producer's mouth, <laughs> including him standing up and telling the tape operator to leave the truck, get out of my truck. I <laughs> mean, he screamed at this guy, and the guy got up and he left his truck. Um, and he did it with one less tape operator. So, you know, you do see, you do see a lot of different uh, personalities in a mobile. Um, I don't think there's anything that's really stuck out as... Uh, being, you know, absolutely insane. Um, I think for the most part, the people that I work, I'm, I'm happy to say are, are pretty cool and calm and mm -hmm. really you have to be because it is, it is a chaotic situation. Um, I do know this, this, uh, this past November when we were doing craft hockeyville, which is always one of the hardest things that we do where we actually, we roll a tape of Gary Batman announcing the winner, you know, we cut, the winner and they're going crazy and then we do an interview um as we were doing it this year and again this was one of those things that was a new experience because we were normally we have a a, a satellite truck in each of the four final locations uh, to have a proper feed come back into the studio well this time we had four zoom calls <laughs> um and which were going into the switcher and um I'll tell you, there's one job I would never, ever want to do, and that is being a switcher. Uh, and this just solidified it this year when um, we had lost 
the feed out of the out of the composite boxes that we were trying to do. And honest to God, this switcher must have hit 68 buttons within the span of 35 seconds. And by the time we got to do the winter interview, he had straightened it out and settled it. And um, I have never to this day, I think, seen a switcher uh, so relieved. And we talked about it for days after that. But um, there are situations like that from a technical standpoint where you just think, oh, my God, is this ever going to be fixed and, and it was in this case but um, yeah it's never a dull moment I, I think it's controlled chaos to some degree but um, I think from uh, when I think of this business it's it's one of the most uh, special places that uh, you could ever be because it's it's exciting and it's what makes the business exciting. Joel Darling is the executive producer at NHL Special Events with Rogers Sportsnet. Joel thank you for taking the time today for chatting with me on the We Sports Chronicles podcast. Thanks for having me and take care.